Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 6? And we're going to begin today at verse 16 as we continue the study through John. John presents during the ministry of Jesus eight miracles. And I probably will preface every message in John with this. In John chapter 20, the Holy Spirit through John, as he comes to a close in his gospel, says that these things have been written for you so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. Then in the very closing part of John chapter 21, to summarize and paraphrase, John says, Jesus did so many things, the world could not contain the books that could be written about them. Constantly, all day, no wonder those times, of course, that came when Jesus was exhausted. Fully God and yet fully man, God who had accommodated himself to a human body, the condescension, the incarnation. So John begins with telling us, the Holy Spirit telling us that God the Son is beyond creation and that he is the creator, John chapter 1. And he made all things. And I'm not sure that even at the time of the great white throne when it is set up and all of the heaven and the earth disappears at the dismantling and destruction of the current universe, the current order of things, I'm not sure that we will have ever even then have exhausted all that he has created. And with all of this massive omnipotent, this power that is unbounded and unleashed and unlimited. God, when he made his time-space continuum, came in then to be a part of it. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that was tremendous, of tremendous, of course, demonstration of the power of God by the hand of God the Son. Now he has claimed, by the time we get to this point in our study, he has already called God his Father, which makes him, he made himself Son of God. Same essence as God. Up to this point, let me back up. We must try to wrap our, wrap our minds, our hearts around who Christ is. We're calling on him to save us from sin. And the power of sin 
is another knowledge or study that perhaps we don't understand completely. How horrible and awful sin is. Because you and I were born into a fallen creation and we've just lived in it all the time. And we won't really be able to understand the contrast of glorification until all of this is laid aside and gone and we are raised in glory. Power of sin, Christ within himself puts it away for his own. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Christ loved his church and died for his church. So then, the almighty creator who had accommodated himself to a human body takes upon himself the wretchedness of fallenness and sin and as it applies especially to his own and he puts it away within himself and he does the suffering, takes the guilt, does all of that for us. Atonement, vicarious death, substitution. Thus we are justified, justification because of atonement, substitution. Great power. Now, Christ has performed four of those eight miracles up to this point. In John, now there have been many others that the other gospel writers had written about. And of course, those that Christ had accomplished or had performed that were not written according to John 21. But in John, the first was turning the water into wine at Cana. Cana, the wedding. With a thought, Christ completely changed the molecular structure of the liquid. It was no longer water, it was wine. The second of those miracles was the healing of the nobleman's son. The son was not present, he was some miles away and Christ with a thought immediately at a distance healed his son. And the proof was given when the servants came and the nobleman asked, when did his fever break? And they said to him when it did and he knew that was exactly when Christ said he's healed. Mighty power. The third miracle we're given in John is the healing of the, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Bethsaida, excuse me, Bethsaida. And in the context, you remember, all the, for all the time these people are laid there, every, at this special time, they thought that some angel came and stirred the waters and the first one in the water got healed. Well, that was just, a, just an old wives' tale, but this poor guy had been brought there for 38 years. He was well known. Everybody knew he, he was infirmed. Nobody would doubt his disabilities. And in the context, we learned that he had become disabled because of a loose and sinful life when Christ said, go and sin no more. It'll be worse for you. 
38 years. And of all of the scores and dozens and maybe even hundreds who were laid there at that point in time, all the time, Christ chose this one, passed others by, went right to him and healed him. It was on the Sabbath. And of course, there was a purpose, a divine purpose, so that Christ could show himself as the Lord of the Sabbath when they criticized him, the leaders of healing on the Sabbath. That was a Sabbath. Christ said, my father's working and I'm working. We always are working. So he puts away that argument, but that was the third miracle. And then the fourth was Christ feeding the 5,000 men. Now, Matthew points out that there were women and children aside from the men, making the number 20 to 25,000, somewhere in there, over 20,000, I'm sure. And Christ took a little sack of a little boy's lunch, five loaves, two fish, and fed thousands and thousands and kept feeding them until they couldn't hold anymore. You remember that? We saw that last time. And then there was just enough left over for the disciples. And so Christ shows, shows his perfection in his deity. And he shows his power to create something out of nothing. I read an article, I didn't mention it last week, but in leading up to this, there was a scientific study done some time back. And the question presented so that the problem might be solved was this, how much energy did it require for Jesus to, in, in one sitting, how much power, how much energy did it require for Christ to feed 20,000 people? And so the, the problems are set into these modern computer banks and so forth. And, and it, can, it, can, it factors in what kind of sunlight and what kind of rain in the soil and the energy drawn from the soil and all this kind of stuff. And the answer came up like this. Using E equals MC squared at the, as the basis, which is relativity, which is energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Why, you and I could figure it out just like that. <laughs> the answer was this. It was enough energy. It required this amount of energy to do what Jesus did just in that one city. It required the, the amount of energy that all of the earth would consume in the modern age 100% of all of the power and energy consumed in planet Earth in the modern age times four years. So four years of 100% consumption of energy in the modern age is how much energy it took. Now, think about that. I'm going to get to a point later on that will draw back on this. I also read that the sun burns six 
hundred million tons of matter in one second. And that the energy dispensed in that one second from the sun produces enough energy to provide the current level of energy needs in the United States for 13 billion years. One second of burning stuff in the sun to produce enough energy for the United States for 13 billion years. Now that really is solar energy, isn't it? Now that's just one second of one star. We don't know how many stars there are. We know there are stars larger and more powerful than our sun. Hubble, you remember, Hubble telescope fixed its sight on what appeared to be a black blank space and left it over well, two weeks or something and they exposed for that long of time and then they thought, let's see what it did. And they saw countless other galaxies and systems that had never been seen before. Which led to the thought, well, what if we could somehow project ourselves to that far in space and put Hubble on another black spot with the same thing happening probably? All the stars, all the universe, and as far as we can tell, our sun is maybe a medium size, I don't know. But our sun, one second of energy to provide the energy needs of the United States of America on the current level for 13 billion years. The discussion here is the deity of Christ, the power of Christ. Why would I ever doubt Christ? If he says your faith has saved you, what else do I need? His deity, his power, by the will of the Father, his power is on display before that world in that day. Now, there's an interesting thing. I read this somewhere. I don't know how long ago I read it, and I can't remember where I read it. But I read it. I didn't dream it or make it up. That even today, you may find a smattering and spattering of fools who try to question the miracles of Christ, but you don't find it much and it quickly dies because here's why. Because the witnesses were so many and the evidence was so powerful in the time when Jesus was on this earth performing those miracles, so many that there couldn't be enough books written about it. So many witnesses and so powerfully amazed and astonished at what Jesus did that even until today people can't bring a solid argument against it the miracles the deity the power 
of Jesus. So we're, we're, we're past the introduction. Let's get into the text. Multitude had just been fed miraculously. And when it became evening, his disciples went down to the sea and having entered into a boat, they were going over the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark. Jesus had not come with them. And the sea was agitated by a strong blowing wind. We have to go back to Matthew and Mark to get the complete picture of what's going on. Jesus sent his disciples by boat to Capernaum. Jesus went up into the mountain alone to pray. His disciples were in the boat. Jesus essentially said, I'll catch up with you. Well, if you take the other gospels into account, they thought, well, we better just pull over to Bethsaida for a little while and let's see. He, he may be there waiting on us or maybe he'll catch up to us there. Well, it, the day went on and then it got into darkness and deep darkness. And they said, well, he ain't coming. So they struck back out. I've been to the Sea of Galilee before. It's surrounded by high mountains. Some of them are snow-capped. It's cold up there. So you have these winds aloft that are cold. And you have these mountains that are kind of close to each other. And then you have the Sea of Galilee, which is 700 feet below sea level. It gets hot there. You have this real cold air and this real hot air. And these mountains that catch the east wind and the north wind and kind of mix them up together. And it becomes almost like a hurricane and just throws those winds down onto the Sea of Galilee. And it gets rough under those conditions. The sea was agitated by a strong blowing wind. It was dark. Jesus hadn't come to them yet. So, Therefore, having rowed about eh, three or four or five miles, they see Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. Okay, let's draw on the other two gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark. It is the fourth watch, which means it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. If the, if, if the police are going to raid your house, the standard rule of thumb is they're going to do it. Maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but they're going to do it around 3 a.m., 3 to 4 a.m. That's when your deepest cycle of sleep is generally. And you're so deep in sleep, you won't offer much resistance. The point being, this is deep into the night. And if you're fighting sleep at this point in time, you just don't feel good. <laughs> now, let's draw back on the other gospel accounts. Jesus, Mark says, Jesus had been watching them. They weren't out there alone. We're never alone. Never. Jesus was watching them. 
Now he had already calmed the storm once. This was an earlier event in Matthew's gospel. Same kind of thing, hurricane type winds and waves and rain and driving stuff everywhere. And Christ was asleep that time. <laughs> they got God in the boat. They're afraid God's going to drown. Listen, that's kind of funny. So finally getting him awake, Jesus said, what is it? Now this is a gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it. But it was kind of like this. Master, don't you even care that we're about to die? <laughs> so, well, oh, ye of little faith. He stood up, looked up at the wind, and he said, peace. Stopped. The raging waters, be still. Stopped. Now, this is not in the Bible, but this is probably what happened. Now, can I get some sleep? That had already happened. Put yourself as just a, a common guy, you know, one of these disciples, and you're trying to wrap your mind again around all this that's going on. These miracles. Here is another case where Jesus was watching them. And he said, well, I, I guess I'm going to get out there to them. They look, kind of, they look scared. So he starts walking the water in a hurricane kind of event toward his disciples. And the disciples went bananas. They said, it's a ghost. That's what Matthew and Mark report. They said, it's a ghost. And you wonder what kind of bedside stories their mean uncles taught them when they were young. <laughs> who, who in that time zone, that time frame would think of a ghost or whatever? It's a ghost. Jesus, walking the water, said, I am he. Fear not, do not be afraid. Now we have to insert here what the other two gospel accounts give to us. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you. Come on. Come on in, the water's fine. The waves aren't but about 30 feet. Peter steps out of the boat. I guess you have to give Peter a little credit. Starts walking to Jesus. And then he starts looking around again. And he starts to sink. Master, save me. Lord, save me. He did, of course. Grabbed him by the hand, pulled him up. This brings us to where we are here. Then, <laughs> then they willingly received him into the boat. <laughs> Who's going to say, I don't know if we want you in here or not, Jesus. We're kind of mad because you weren't at Bethsaida. They willingly, in other words, boy, are we glad to see you. Willingly received him into the boat. The other two gospel accounts say immediately the storm stopped when he got into the boat. And then look what John says. 
And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Poof! Storm stops. And they blink an eye and they're on the shore. Now, let me go to uh, Mark's gospel. Because this is pertinent for us. Mark says, the closing comments of this particular occasion, Mark 6, I think. Mark says, they couldn't it was beyond their wits. It was beyond their wits to process what had happened because they were still thinking about the loaves. <laughs> they're, still saying, they're still thinking. I'll think about this one later. I'm still trying to wrap this loaves thing around my mind. It says, and the, the, the Greek word there is, it's a, it, from, it comes from ek and hemisti, which means out of their wits. In other words, they did not have the mental capacity to receive what they were seeing. But then there's another word right after that, at the end of that phrase that says, and their hearts were rendered insensitive. The, the Greek word on that last one means that they were, they could not perceive. They didn't have the capacity to perceive. So they were out of their wits and beyond their capacity to perceive what had happened over the loaves. Now this didn't even have to do with all of a sudden appearing on land. This, they're still thinking about the lows. They can't process this in their minds. This is the fifth of eight miracles. Each one designed to reveal the incarnate Lagos of John 1. Now, think of your Savior. Who in the space of hours absorbed upon himself All of the sins, guilt, penalty of all of his own upon himself on the cross. This is what he came to do. Along the way, he demonstrates the power of God. Now, back to Mark's gospel where it said they were out of their wits, out of their minds, and unable to perceive what had happened. 
it says after that, and they worshiped him as the son of God. What else you going to do? Nothing. This is why it is foolish. It's okay to study things. I enjoy looking in a microscope and seeing what the mites of my flesh look like or the bed bugs in my bed. I enjoy that. That that looks awful. I read where the average human in the United States of America, it's been several years since I read this, but the average human swallows eight spiders a year. No wonder I wake up sometimes not wanting any breakfast. Eight spiders. <laughs> so I like to look at microscopic things. I've had telescope. I had a nice telescope one time. About 500 and something power. I've seen the rings of Saturn and the spots of Jupiter, and I've seen little clouds out there and stuff. Mine wasn't that fancy. You had to twist the knobs while the Earth turned, or you'd lose it. Just like, well, there it goes. There goes Saturn. Just lost it. <laughs> I like to read the articles about what's been discovered by Hubble, for example, all those galaxies and things that nobody ever knew. Couldn't. It's beyond perception. What is out there? We can't, we don't know. How does this vast creation of God stay in tune and keep its balance? Very simple, Colossians 1. The hand of Christ sustains it. The hand of Christ. Someday he will release his hold on it. Peter says elements will melt fervent heat. First earth, first heaven, pass away someday. And the more I read of Christ, the more humbled I am that first of all, he would even create me. I'm holding out for a little bit better appearance in the resurrection. But I'm proud of my creation because it, you see, you have to know what ugly is before you can understand pretty. That's, uh, diametric opposites. What do we call it in poly? Huh? Polar opposite and it's called, uh, conceptual Polarity, that's right, conceptual polarity. You can't know what skinny is unless you know what fat is. You can't know what hair is unless you know what bald is. You can't know what pretty is unless you know what ugly is. So you see, I'm proud of my creation. It makes other people look better. You wouldn't look so good. I haven't decided yet. You know, they always say, well, you're going to look like you looked when you were 30 because that's how Christ looked. I don't know about all that. 
I've been wondering, I want hair, that's for sure, but I don't know if I want it solid white or kind of dark. I don't know. I'll let Pat choose it if he lets you do that. Here's the deal. He's all powerful. He can do anything. He can think from heaven, from wherever. He is, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. And he walked on this earth. The proof of his deity by the miracles, the evidence so profound and so concrete that even today you can't argue against it. And now, in the science that we have today, we can only so much more highly appreciate the energy and the power that Christ demonstrated when he did these things. The last one will be his resurrection. Power. To take that which is dead and make it live. To create things. And of all of the creation that there is, here's what I think we're going to discover. The universe has been created like it is, and because well, it says it was given for signs and seasons and helps us keep our direction. That's what Genesis says. All the stuff that's out there, this little speck that we call home on earth, was created that the Father might give his gift to the Son. We'll talk about that in John 6 on down, verses 3. 37, 38, 39, 40. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And all those who come to me, I will, I will know not ever cast him out. Not ever. That's the word of God. The Father gives the bride to the Son, and we will never, ever be disjoined or cast out never by the word of God himself so he demonstrates this power it is so powerful that even today people will come to the call of the father in the son by the spirit to be saved and to be supernaturally changed be born anew from above Christ so powerful he saves us he keeps us saved and the whole purpose of the whole thing was so that God's own could be presented to the son and the son in that covenant, eternal covenant between the father and the son, the son in accepting the gift, declared that he would receive them to himself and he would do whatever it took. He says, I will not lose one, not one of them.
John 6. On down there, we'll get there one of these days. All that he gives to me, I will not lose one of them, but raise him up at the last day. So that into the ages of the ages, in a new heaven and a new earth, in a glory that cannot be described because the Bible teaches us the Old Testament prophet is quoted by the New Testament apostle. The eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, man cannot imagine the things that God has in store for those who love him. We can't, we're, we're like these disciples on the sea, we're witless. It's beyond what we are, who we are, it's beyond it. But we will enter into the glory of it. Maybe through the ages, we'll begin to understand it. But all of this is done for his own. Remember, back in the other gospel, in Mark's gospel, Jesus was watching them. They were scared to death. They didn't know Jesus was watching them, but Jesus. <laughs> you've, heard, you've heard of the parrot who quoted that scripture to the guy who broke into the house. Jesus is watching you, you know. And the, the Doberman Pincher was named Jesus, right? <laughs> well, this is better than that. Jesus is watching you. And if he has to walk the sea, he'll walk the sea. He did. And he blesses us and helps us in ways that are beyond comprehension. And we're like those disciples. It's beyond our wits and beyond our perception, which drives us to do the only thing that we can do, and that is to worship the Son of God, worthy of our worship. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he came into this world to save sinners. According to the word of God, if you will admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus and call on him to save you. God will save you, bound by his word to save you. And then to keep you to himself. Perhaps you're here today without Christ. As we dismiss, I want to inform you that there will be deacons and their wives in rooms right across the hall as you exit. You'll see them. If God has placed it in your heart to receive Christ, if he calls you to his salvation, tell these disciples, what's on your, these deacons, what's on your heart. Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian and you need to follow the Lord in baptism. You've never been obedient to that command of Christ. They'll take care of that for you. They'll take care of the details, make the arrangements. Maybe you're here and God leads you to come and be a part of Shiloh. Where we study the word of God as it is, believe it like it is, and serve the Lord and serve one another and fellowship with one another. Then we'll take care of all those details. You just talk to those deacons about that. As you exit, would you?
Would you prayerfully stand all over this room? And I'll pray. Father, we marvel at what you've done for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died to save us, who lives to keep us, and who's coming again for us. Thank you for your word that it bears such powerful testimony to the Christ, to our Savior, and who he is, that one who is our Savior, and what he does, and what he will do. Now, Lord, I pray that you'll dismiss us from here in your love. Bless those, Lord, who need to Go and talk to our deacons. Give them strength and courage to do so. And I pray, God, that you'll use this service today in your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.